Back in the 14th century, in the region we now call Belgium, there was a duke by the name of Ronald III. Ronald had a nickname, Crassus. Crassus means large. And he was large because he really, he really liked to eat. He liked to eat a lot. Something I could relate to. I know I was out. My surgery started about 7.20, or they prepped me about 7.20 in the morning. I don't remember anything until like two. My wife came back, visited me. I slept some more. I went to my room at seven. They asked me if I was hungry. I said, yeah, they said they could probably find something, but food service was shut down. So they found a tray. And it was probably a tray in which somebody just wanted a dessert and a drink off of it. Because I had the regular course, there was just no dessert or drink. But then they gave me a, a ginger ale. But my point being, I ate that. And then food service must have seen I went to a room and they brought up another tray, this time with a dessert and drink. I ate that too. So I wanted to, well, of course, remember though, I did, I did fast for almost like a whole day. You know, I ate about eight o'clock the night before. But I just want you to know, you probably noticed that I do like to eat. But in the course of time, this individual had a violent quarrel with his younger brother, Edward, which resulted in Edward leading a revolt against him. Edward took his brother, Renald, prisoner, and he took him back to a castle, the Newkirk Castle, where it had a special room built around him. He promised his brother he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave that room. Now, for normal-sized people, that wouldn't have been a problem. There were, there were several windows and a door of normal size, and none of them were locked or barred or had anything to, to uh, keep you from going out them. But the problem for Renald was his size. In order to leave the room, he had to lose some weight. But Edward knew his brother's weakness, and he made sure trays of delicious foods were delivered to his room each day. Maybe that was the start of room service. Thus, instead of dieting his way out of prison, Renald grew larger. When Edward was accused of cruelty, he readily replied, my brother is not a prisoner. He may, he may leave at any time with his own, his own will. Being delivered from evil depends on not being led into temptation, nor trial or temptation is, we know it's neutral. There are deals that either strengthen or weaken us, depending upon how we handle the situation. Christ teaches us to pray to be delivered from, from not only evil, but also from what carries us there. Our first text this morning is from James, and our second will be from Ephesians. In James 1, verses 13 to 15, we read the following. But no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and he's enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We see that temptation isn't sin. 
on its own. But sin can't thrive without temptation. Or in Ronald's case, his fight wasn't in how to get through the door, but in how to get around the food that tempted him. Ronald stayed in that room, from what I understand, for 10 years and wasn't released until after his brother Edward died in battle. But then his health was so ruined that he died within a year. He died a prisoner, you would say, to his own appetite. And as I read this tragic story, I was struck by several truths. First, Satan takes us prisoner by capitalizing on our own desires, our own weaknesses, our own taste. He doesn't need to create those things in us. He just takes advantage of our appetites. And then he sets out to do his best to see to it that we stay satisfied with the pleasures of sin that tempt us. Second, we see that Renault had a choice. He could only eat as much as was truly necessary. He could have exercised in his cell and he could have walked through the cell door after losing the weight. But he was too fond of his sweets and tasty delights. Therefore, becoming his own warden, he was held in prison only by his own weaknesses. The same is true for us. Satan can't keep us in the prison. It is our choice to continue to smother ourselves and to indulge in our own passions and sin. Or we could try to leave the prison behind, giving those things up. Third, we think that the things we long for in human nature are what make us happy. Many people will say, drink and be happy. What we have, we only live once. So do what makes you happy. That if we have something, some people think that's enough. And we will be free for a long time. Not realizing, or at least not admitting to our own selves, that we are only perpetrating our imprisonment. Freedom awaits us outside the imprisonment of our own desires. What, what, what would we rather have? Freedom or another piece of cheesecake? Sadly enough, I'd ask to ask you, what topping are you putting on that cheesecake? Nope. We want freedom, of course. Jesus tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This morning we read a warning from Paul, specifically to new Christians in Ephesus, where he urged them, don't die a prisoner to your own appetites. My second text is now in Ephesians, and now the rest of our uh, sermon this morning will be focused on Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be concentrating in verses 17 through about 20, maybe 30, in that range there. But everything now the verses I refer to will be in Ephesians 4 for the most part. I will have a couple cross references, but beginning Ephesians 4 and verse 17. 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their own understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Now, that's the way we see. You would ask, oh, well, how did they learn Christ? Well, it was not by that. They did not learn Christ that way, you know, Paul's saying. But that's how they grew up. They once walked as the Gentiles did because they were Gentiles and they lived in Ephesus. Ephesus, from what I understand, was a thriving seaport. It would probably be referred to as the treasure house of Asia. And it was highly prized by the Romans. The Romans had invested a large amount of money in building the city up to make it the center. It finally became the center of that area. And because of that, the Roman governor would often hold legal proceedings there. But it wasn't a very nice city, if you study. It was the home to the temple of Diana the goddess of fertility. Her temple, from what I understand, was a huge structure. It could accommodate about 24,000 people. And it's thought of as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But because Artemis was the goddess of futility, the worship there included the burning of incense and the playing of flute music. And the whole atmosphere was designed to arouse the worshipers into an emotional frenzy and engage in shameless sexual behavior, we'll just leave it at that. Ephesus was a city of criminals. The tradition in Ephesus was that if any criminal reached the temple of Diana, that they were granted asylum for their crimes. They couldn't be punished. So many criminals ended up living there. Because of that, Ephesus was an extremely popular city, but also an extremely immoral city. And that's where these Ephesian Christians grew up. That's where they lived. And that's a lot of the lifestyle that was around them. The influence that they had. And as you might imagine, it would be very difficult to live a Christian life there. The temptation to do evil things existed on every street corner. And the Ephesians lived right there in the midst of some of that pretty nasty stuff. The question arose, how could Christians avoid getting dragged back into their old lifestyles? How could Christians avoid becoming imprisoned in their own appetites? These are the same questions that I'd like to address or ask you today. These are the same questions we face in our present world. One way would be to get these bold, bad folks to stop doing their bad stuff, you would say. I mean, if we could convince people to stop. Hmm, today, listening, we could get them to stop listening to vile lyrics in their music, stop going to inappropriate movies, convince them to stop sleeping with their friends, or committing adultery, treating women like sex objects, or if we could convince them to stop cursing. 
or saying or writing mean or hateful things so prevalent on the internet today. I mean, if we could just do that, then being a Christian would be so much easier, don't you think? But Paul tells us that's not going to be real successful. I'd like to now read verses 18 and 19 of our text in 4. The Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of immorality. Before I became a teacher, I was always interested in law enforcement, especially detective and and so criminal minds. Um, not that I like the show and anything that goes on, but um, I guess I'd say forensic files. It amazes me how they find things out. And that really is what I would love to have done is to try to do that. 2020, I just, you know, I just recently watched a show and sometimes, I mean, it's, I wouldn't suggest watching it. Um, it's pretty morbid because you know, eventually these people are killed. A lot of times they're teenagers and so on, but they talk about how they solved the case. And a lot of times it's not the person you thought. I bring that up to say the, you have to think about the, like how did these people even think that was right to take someone's life the way they did? And it's almost like they had no appreciation of life when they do that. And that's what these people were like. And we see a lot of people in our society today, just look at the news and so on. Or sometimes the things that are said that really pierce in the heart. Sometimes it's just verbal that is, you know, pretty um, harmful also. These folks had lived like this for so long that if you ask them to stop, I'm sure many of them would just look at you and say, why? Today. We need to stop doing it. Why? Why? I'm doing what makes me happy. They're alienated from God. There's a hardness and callous in them. There's, they're so imprisoned in their own lifestyles that Paul says to them that they've given themselves up to sensuality or whatever. They've gotten to the point where they ask, what's the point? It's so hard to stop doing. They would say, why bother? Someone once stated that the seven deadly sins, you know, pride, lust, greed, etc., are not evil acts, but they're rather universal human compulsions that can be troubling, but highly enjoyable. Tell me, that isn't somebody trying to argue their way out of something or justifying the means that they shouldn't be in. In other words, many have accepted their prison of compulsions and accepted the idea that I'm not getting out of there. Just why bother? I'm not getting out, so why bother? By contrast, the reason that we Christians don't buy into that is that Jesus has promised to free us from all the things like this that have made us ashamed of ourselves. The pagan world isn't going to change just because we say they should. 
Another way to escape the prison of sin would be to practice social distancing. Go live in a corner. Lock yourself up in a monastery or something, or go and live in a cave somewhere. That's what people did back in the Middle Ages. But Paul tells us that's not very practical. I'd like to now look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He writes that I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since they that then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or envious. There's no avoiding the fact that we live in a fallen world and that's where we're going to stay until Jesus comes again. We don't see the world getting any better. So if I can't convince the bad folk to change their bad ways, and if I can't practice effective social distancing by living in a cave somewhere, how can I avoid being imprisoned by my appetites, just like everyone else? <clears throat> well, this is what Paul says we should do. I'm going back now to Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like to now advance to verse 22. Paul says, Then you put off concerning your formal conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the defeat, deceitful lust. What happens? Why are we encouraged to become a Christian? We are buried in a grave of baptism to contact the blood of Jesus. And then what does it say? That we would walk, arise and walk in newness of life, putting off the old man. We had those formal desires, put them off, putting on God. In other words, determine not to live by your appetites. Decide you are not going to live like a pagan. That's what repentance is all about. Repentance is the decision to turn around and leave the old style. I'd like to put it out this way. Suppose you've been out in the garden digging dirt, pulling weeds, and sweating up a storm. You get all done, and you realize that you're supposed to go out to eat with friends that night. So what do you do? You could go inside, take off your dirty clothes, take a shower. Once you towel off, you're ready to go out and eat, aren't you? I hope not. You're naked. They arrest people for going around in public that way. So what do you have to do? You have to put on clean clothes. It's not enough just to take off your dirty clothes and take a bath. You have to put on clean garments. My point being, we are buried with Jesus in baptism. We arise to walk. We are cleansed of our sin. We walk in newness of life. We can't just say we're ready. We have to put on, take off the old garment, but we have to put on that new garment. We have to put on that understanding of reading and studying following Jesus's way, knowing what God's word says, following what God says. And in the same way, it's not enough to take off the sins of the past. We have to replace those sinful behaviors with something else. We have to put on clean deeds, clean thoughts, clean words. <clears throat> Go back to our text, Ephesians 4, now verse 24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and holiness. And just to help us out, Paul gives us some examples. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What am I taking off? Lying. What am I putting on? Telling the truth. Now, it's interesting. Paul doesn't stop by telling them to get a job. He tells them why they should get a job. I'd like to now move forward to verses 29 to 32 in Ephesians 4. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for a necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. What am I supposed to take off? Corrupt talk, vulgar words, curse words, profanity, evil words, hurtful words. And what am I supposed to put on in their place? Words that build others up, make them feel good. And that's not all. Profane language isn't all about just using curse words. You can have corrupt language that doesn't have a single curse word in it. You can have an unwholesome talk that isn't filled with profanity. In fact, there's a corrupt talk that gives God's spirit, which is inside of us. It grieves God's spirit, which is inside each of us. These are words filled with bitterness, hatred, slander. And God says, get rid of that. Do not tear others down by what you say. God despised that kind of language. But why? What or why would God hate that kind of language? Well, because God knows each and every one of us. He knows us about us enough that he can say, think about what God could do. You want slander. Think about what God could say about each and every one of us. God knows everything about us. He knows what we thought. Oh, my. Could you imagine it? Sometimes I watch that TV, you know, the TV shows where they're silly like that and a person can't lie. person has to tell the truth, you know, somehow they granted a wish or whatever. Could you imagine if while you were sitting in a group, like at your, your group meeting or whatever, and somebody's talking, that somebody could verbalize your thoughts out loud? Hmm. Remember, God can. So our point being, isn't it amazing that God knows everything about us? And yet God says he would forgive us. We ask his forgiveness, he forgives us. So who are we to slander other people, to say the evil things about them? Because I'm sure God knows much more about us. God doesn't do that. He won't repeat those words about our past because in Christ, he forgave each and every one of us. In Christ, all our shameful behavior has been erased. Since that is true, it's inappropriate for us to gratefully accept him forgiving us and then turn around and not forgive others of their behavior. So in closing, in the midst of the conversation about taking off sinful deeds and putting on good deeds, we must not lose sight of the fact that we're not doing all this because just because we're nice people. We may think we are, 
but that's not possible. What does Isaiah 64 and 6 tell us? All our righteousness acts are like filthy rags before God. Hmm. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In other words, we won't be able to stand before God at the judgment and say, hey, look uh, how nice I'm dressed. Aren't I looking nice today? Oh, no. There isn't, this isn't about dressing up in our own righteous deeds, saying, look at me, Lord, I know that I'm righteous enough that I can pass because of my own behavior. That's the key word I'm saying. You know, some people think they can do it on their own. I'm righteous on my own. No, it's God's grace that we look at also. In Revelation 3.18, what does Jesus say? I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. We think about God is the one that dresses us up. Well, when I look at this, I know this is kind of strange. I always wondered, if I felt like I wanted the prayers of the congregation, but I'm the minister, what would I do? So I want you to know at this time, I'm actually going to go to God to prayer because I've actually kind of come forward for myself for a prayer, if you understand that. And I'm actually pray for myself and each and every one of you. So I'm going to like the prayer at this time. Lord, please forgive me and any of those that are here today who are trapped in our own prisons because of our temptations, our own desires, or the times that we are trapped because we don't always put you first. The times that we seem like we are trying to ride the fence and it feels like, you know, we're trying to be both, as we mentioned in our Bible study, in both parts, in the world and part of you. May we put you first and then have all these things added to us. May we have the desire to put you in such a way that we say that we love you with all our heart, mind, soul, being, and self. May we be able to put that. We ask this, we ask for your forgiveness, and we ask that you would guide us as we move forward, that we can replace these old clothing with the nuclear clothing of, our, of your spirit and your, your um, anointment as we move forward in our lives. And may we have a home with you in heaven in the end. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I would like to just finish by saying it's Jesus who clothes us in pure garments. It's his blood and it's his forgiveness that covers the nakedness of our sins. In fact, that's how we become or how we come forward to salvation. When we're baptized in Christ, Paul says in Galatians 3 and 27, and we all know this first, that for as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. This morning, we have that opportunity to put on Christ for anyone who has not, for those that have and just need the prayers of the congregation. You'd have that opportunity to come forward as together we stand and sing our song of invitation. <laughs>